this is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, and this is The Full Story. Australia has a new system for getting people off welfare and back to work. It's called Workforce Australia, and this revamp was supposed to fix some major flaws. But job seekers say they're still being forced to travel long distances and do courses that they don't need in order to receive their payments. Meanwhile, the private industry that manages this system is making more than a billion dollars a year. Today, how much has really changed in Australia's welfare-to-work industry? It's Thursday, the 1st of September. So, Luke, last month, a revamped version of our welfare system, now called Workforce Australia, came into place. And many were hoping that it would change things for the better. Has it done that? Well, um, there's been a lot of criticism. And really, I guess things have gotten so bad from the perspective of some advocacy organisations that they've been calling on the government to pause this system. Luke Henriquez-Gomes is Guardian Australia's social affairs and inequality editor. And at the same time, there's also a parliamentary committee, which is um, now going to examine how it's working. Right. So before we get into the problems with how the welfare system is working, let's lay out some of the basics of what this system does. So Australia provides a range of income support payments to Australians for all kinds of things. So crisis support, the pension, uh, to help people pay for the cost of raising children and also unemployment benefits. And most of the people on unemployment benefits fall under this newly branded job services system called Workforce Australia. This system is run by a number of private job agencies who help people find jobs. They also monitor people's job applications and refer them to jobs. They also send job seekers to training courses and can require them to do other activities to qualify for their payments. And these are called mutual obligations. Can you tell me a bit more about these private companies that the government tasks with getting people back into work? So some are smaller charities and nonprofits or larger charities as well. But a lot of the top companies are multinationals and publicly listed companies. And they're going to rake in hundreds of millions of dollars over the next few years doing this work. And it's also important, I guess, to note that the system wasn't always like this. It used to be run by the government, an agency called the Commonwealth Employment Service, but that was wound up and the system was privatised under John Howard in the late 90s. So since then, we've had this vast network of private job agencies and related training companies who are entirely or mostly dependent on these government contracts. We've had that spring up and it's kind of like an unemployment industry. What are mutual obligations overseen by these job agencies designed to do? Well, in theory, they're there to help people prepare for the workforce and to find a job. Um, But I guess they're also there to sort of prove to the public that people who are receiving benefits are doing all that they can to find a job and therefore, you know, so that they qualify for job seeker payments. Mm. But the problem with the system, I guess, is that Often, because these are private companies, there's a profit motive. And so some of the, you know, whether it's training courses or education or other activities that people are referred to um, can be poor quality or they can be irrelevant to a person's aspirations or previous experience. And in some cases, the job agency can refer people to training courses which are run by the same company. So to help me understand some of these flaws and how mutual obligations works in practice, you introduced me to a woman that we'll call Sarah. 
Hi. How are you going? Uh, well, how are you? Good, thank you. I can just hear, I thought I could hear something in the background there for a second. Uh, yes, that's right. That, that was my son. I'll just ask him to stop and I'll try that again. Okay, this is really, really important, okay, because they're recording this. So Sarah's story is similar to quite a few people I've been chatting to. She's a single mum of three. Uh, two of her children have disabilities. And so her involvement with the welfare and job services system is through a program called Parents Next. And that's been around since 2018. It's aimed at single parents who are on parenting payment and it's mostly single mothers who have children under the age of six who are on that program. And these parenting payments are about $900 a fortnight. That's a fair bit higher than the job seeker payment. Can you tell me a little bit more about your, your kids? How old are they? And what are you comfy sharing about some of the health stuff they've got going on? Uh, they are two, almost five, almost seven. So two of my children are autistic. So I guess a lot of our time is taken up with um, therapies and stuff. And the, the, two, the two older ones are in school at the moment. It is quite a lot. It's very overwhelming and they all have very different needs. And I guess from the therapy sessions, I'm getting lots of um, strategies that I'm needing to implement. So always on the go, (laughs) always stuff to do. And what is that like for you financially? How do you get by week to week? Yes, it is quite difficult living week to week, um, especially having such large medical expenses constantly. Choose up a lot of our budget. Um, always having to cut corners. How tight is the budget? I mean, what type of corners need to be cut fairly regularly for you? It comes from all places. If something comes up like a, um, a school cost or someone needs a new pair of shoes or we have to buy a birthday present or something or a medical bill, there's always stuff coming up that kind of isn't in the weekly budget. Mm. Um, so it means I do have to take from things like the food budget or maybe in an extreme circumstance, I might need to pay my rent a couple of days late, which is obviously not not what I want to do, but sometimes it's unavoidable. So this type of struggle is not uncommon. Many people in the system are really vulnerable and they rely on welfare payments to get by from week to week. But her story, I guess, also points to um, some of the longstanding problems in the system in the privatisation of, of job services. I have a chronic medical condition which causes me to faint. It affects my heart rate, my blood pressure. In 2019, Sarah had to pause her study because she had some serious health issues. So I wasn't able to stand without fainting at that time in my life. I was also having complications in my pregnancy and my um, then middle child was in the process of being diagnosed with autism. So there was a lot going on. And her mutual obligations plan was changed. Instead of studying, she was referred to a bunch of different skills courses. So uh, they changed my mutual obligations to be uh, these short courses, which they called Elmo Talent. So they were for things like very basic communication skills, the kinds of things that I have known for my entire life. Uh, Things like how to use Microsoft Word, which I've again been using my entire life. Sarah ended up doing 10 of these online courses. They're about 20 minutes long. And they included things like understanding body language, making decisions, how to communicate effectively, and managing the discipline process. So they were very 
brief, (laughs) very basic. For example, in the communication course, they would have a picture of a a thumbs up and they would say thumbs up means good. So it was on that kind of level. Another example I remember from that one where they were saying um, if someone crosses their, their arms, they could be feeling, you know, quite standoffish. But if they're doing that outside at a bus stop, they're probably just cold. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, she selected a couple of courses that she was made to do off a list and they didn't really seem particularly helpful. And as we've talked about, her personal circumstances are were quite serious at the time. I think understandably she was, you know, found some of it quite offensive in its simplicity, yet this is what she had to do in order to get welfare payments. It felt quite insulting, I think, especially since I was on a break from a bachelor's degree to be told that I needed to spend my time doing these very basic courses, which felt like a tremendous waste of time and took time away from being with my children to do these things that I I didn't need and they didn't have any benefit to me. So the important thing to understand about Sarah's story is that the non-profit job agency that referred her to these courses called Communicare also runs the courses. So they're tasked by the government with helping her find a job and as part of that they then refer her on to their own training course and in doing so they're making money off Sarah twice. How much money does Communicare get for these two services, having Sarah on their books and then referring her to their own course? So Communicare gets a $600 service fee, which is paid every six months, while someone is on their books and is, you know, getting support and advice. Now, we don't know in this case how much Communicare was reimbursed each time they referred someone to one of their own courses. But we do know that they've referred more than 2,000 of their clients or about a third of their caseload to their own courses since 2018. And they racked up $113,118 in extra payments from the Department of Employment and Workplace Relations uh, Participation Fund in that time. Mm. Now, it's not just Communicare that has done this. We've reported on other instances where the provider, which was a person's job agency, was also then referring them to courses which they run. And, And anecdotally, it's very common. Is the way that the system is set up creating a bit of an incentive for these companies to both keep people on welfare and refer them on to their own courses because they earn more money when they do that, Luke? So there's not really an incentive to keep people on welfare because the job agencies will make more money if they do get people into work. They get a fee whenever they get people a job and the longer that person stays in a job, the more money they get basically. There is a profit incentive though. So what happens is they end up assisting the people who need the least help to get work uh, and to get those payments. And those people who might need support but would take up more resources can get abandoned as a result. You can see that in the courses as well. Again, there's a clear incentive. If you know someone has to do training because of their mutual obligations, you're going to refer them to your own training courses if your company runs them. What does the government and companies like Communicare say about the courses that they run and how the system is working? Communicare and the Australian government maintain that these courses are doing what they're designed to do, which is helping people prepare for work. A Communicare spokesperson told us that the, the short courses were designed to specifically meet the needs of parents and ex-participants to provide them with a, a range of skills to prepare them for future employment 
And the spokesperson pointed out that there was a rigorous claims process and Communicare had never been forced to return any money to the department. Next, welfare to work has a new name, but how much has changed? So, Luke, it sounds like there are some flaws here, but there has been a revamp of this system. Can you tell me about this? So, essentially, it changed from Job Active to, um, as we've mentioned, a new name, Workforce Australia. And this new system came into effect in July this year. Now, before the election, the previous Morrison government announced it would replace Job Active with Workforce Australia and sign contracts with job providers worth $7 billion as part of the new program. Now, the old program, Job Active, that was in place since 2015. And in general, it required people to apply for 20 jobs a month to get their benefits. And it was criticised heavily as unfair, punitive and ineffective at getting people into work. A Senate committee in 2019, for example, found it was pretty much preventing some people from finding work. Mm. So this new system, Workforce Australia, I guess is pitched at giving job seekers more flexibility to meet their mutual obligations. And to do that, there's a new points-based activation system, or PBAS as it's been called, where job seekers have to acquire up to 100 points each month to meet their obligations. And they can do that through a range of different activities. So that might be study, training, you know, going to a jobs fair, working, doing work for the dole, rather than just you know, job applications. Mm. And so the other big change was that previously everybody would have to go to a job agency if you were on like job seeker payment. And now it's only people who are considered a bit more disadvantaged who go to a job agency and others who are classified by Centrelink as quote unquote job ready, they do their job search through an online portal. What's the idea behind this? Moving some people to an online system rather than face-to-face meetings? So in the old system, uh, Job Active, there was an average caseload for a job agency consultant of about 150. So as you can imagine, it makes it pretty difficult to provide people with one-on-one, you know, tailored support when you're dealing with 150 different people with different circumstances. You don't have time to find them work, let alone, you know, properly help them. Um, So the idea then is that the job agencies would have more time to deal with the people who needed it. And the other, I guess, aim is that it would stop the job agencies from just helping the people that they thought needed the least resources to get them into work so that they could make money by getting bonus payments from those people. That's kind of the the thinking. Right. So the people who need the most help have these face-to-face meetings and are really, the resources are supposed to be pushed towards them under this new system. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's exactly right. Luke, as you said, this has come under fire since it's been rolled out just last month. What are the main criticisms of this new system? At the moment, I guess the main complaints are that the mutual obligations rules and those points are still too harsh. Mm. You know, we've heard lots of different anecdotal stories about people having to go to extreme lengths to meet those obligations, even though 
penalties and suspensions have been suspended. You know, we've still reported on some pretty wild cases, a person who, you know, has to do a 250-kilometre round trip to go to job agency appointments to get their benefits. Another man who literally had to miss a day of work to go to a job agency appointment because his consultant insisted that they come in for an appointment, um, which was ironic seeing as the program is supposed to be helping people into work and he was already at work. Mm. So those are some of the stories we've been hearing. In terms of the points themselves, people doing full-time work for the dole or full-time study won't get 100 points. They'll still have to do other things, mostly look for work or submit job applications to fulfil their requirements. We've heard stories of people doing particular tertiary degrees whose courses aren't considered eligible, so they get no points for that study. And I guess more broadly, a lot of the people I've spoken to say that they haven't noticed a difference in the quality of service between the previous system and the new system. So they've changed over to a new provider and they say that it's kind of been very similar. And that is, I guess, counter to the whole point of the system, which is supposed to be more one-on-one support. What about issues like those raised in Sarah's story, that some job agencies are profiting twice in this system? So that's uh, said to continue. Mm. There are new training contracts as well as part of Workforce Australia and um, it's estimated there's about $300 million in extra revenue which will go to job agencies and non-profits who are also running those training programs. Mm. And The Guardian revealed recently that the Department of Employment and Workforce um, Workplace Relations was planning on banning the practice um, in the new system, but they decided not to after the employment services industry lobbied them to allow it to continue. Well, I'm joined now by the Employment and Workplace Relations Minister, Tony Burke. How are you? Thanks for joining us. You came into government with the previous government having decided to replace a system called Job Active with a new points-based activation scheme. And my understanding is you're about to dump this scheme. Why? Well, we're not dumping it. Um, look, it's a $7 billion contract. You mentioned uh, labourers looking at what they can do about this new system. Are they going to revamp the revamp? I mean, what's their response to all of this? So after the election, the new employment minister, Tony Burke, he, he acknowledged that there were some issues with the new system, in particular the points system. I want proper... Uh, points given to somebody if they're trying to get a forklift license or trying to get their driver's license. I want to make so sure you might that if you retain the point system, but the concept of the point yeah. system. But he said overall contracts had already been signed, etc. It's actually too late to not have a point system at all. It's about getting inside it and making it logical and making sure that when all these contracts take effect in a couple of weeks' time, we've actually got a system that helps long-term unemployed people connect themselves and get working again. And he said, you know, he he agreed with the general concept. You believe in the concept of mutual obligation? Absolutely. Okay. We've seen this minimum wage decision during the week. Now, after, you know, advocates raise the alarm and also after several of our stories on the problems with Workforce Australia in the early days, the government said it was going to form a, a lower house select committee to look at Workforce Australia. This is due to report back in September next year. What kind of things could we see under this review? Do you you think we might hear a lot more stories similar to the ones that you've uncovered in the past month or so? I would say there's no doubt that that's the case because generally the way these inquiries work is that you have 
organisations like advocacy groups who will be asked to give evidence and also individuals will be asked to make submissions so job seekers will get the chance to tell parliament how the system is working for them or not. So this is going to continue and I think to, I suppose, be fair to the government, that's the feedback that they're wanting to hear. So that's a good thing. So this Lower House Committee won't report for another year. That's quite a long time. Are there any prospects for this system to change in the meantime? Um, I think there's a possibility of some very small changes um, and the Minister has said that he's open to seeing where shorter-term improvements can be made, but I wouldn't expect any big overhaul until after the inquiry reports. Right, so a lot of problems seem to have continued here, Luke. Why is that? Is there a deeper problem inherent in how we're running this welfare program? Well, since the Commonwealth Employment Service was wound up in the in the late 90s and the whole system was privatised, you essentially have a situation where there's this vast network of private job agencies, charities and also for-profit companies, some of them multinationals, who are dependent on these government contracts. And so, I mean, you, you've got private companies who I guess have an incentive to either make a profit or be financially sustainable. So that's their priority, which is a problem. Right. So if we return to the previous system, a system where the government runs this, would that solve some of these problems, Luke? I certainly think it would um, solve the issue of people being referred to unhelpful training courses or not receiving the help that they need because you would lose the profit motive that's in place. And that is essentially what people say the old system used to be like. If you needed assistance, you would go to the CES and you would get help. Now, obviously, it's a little bit more complicated than that now because the labour market is very different to what it once was, but you at least wouldn't have the problem of companies essentially profiting off the unemployment of disadvantaged people and in some cases making money while not really providing a very good service. You've been engaging with Australia's welfare system for years. How does it make you feel dealing with it? Well, I guess my life has taken a different path than I envisioned. So to have a stranger pry into my health and my driving ability and my study every month is uncomfortable and invasive. I feel like it reminds me that I'm not where I want to be, but without offering any solutions. So I find it quite demoralising. What do you think of the idea of mutual obligations, that we tie welfare payments in Australia to, you know, people getting job ready and doing certain tasks? Yeah, I think if someone is in a position where they need to be on a pension, then they're the wrong person to be targeting. I think they already have enough things to juggle, enough stresses, and it doesn't need it to be added to. That was Luke Henriquez-Gomes, Guardian Australia's Social Affairs and Inequality Editor. Thanks also to Sarah for her time. You can read Luke's reporting on Workforce Australia at theguardian.com, including Sarah's story, where you can see a bit more detail about the courses she did as part of her mutual obligations. I would also really recommend Luke's analysis piece titled, In Australia's Welfare Sector, Obligations Are Mutual, But Profits Flow Only One Way. 
This episode was produced by Jane Lee, Karishma Luthria and Joe Koning, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Mattignoni, Gabrielle Jackson, Molly Glassie and me, Laura Murphy-Oates. If you liked this episode, please leave a rating or a review. It does help other people find the show. Okay, catch you tomorrow.